Amen. A young man was talking to me out in the concourse earlier today, and he's kind of new here. and I don't know him so well yet, but he got honest. He opened up. He said, yeah, you know, kind of slipped up recently, and the end of the week wasn't so good, and I thought that I just wouldn't come to church today, but he said, I, I'm here. And that just served to remind me that the I think the best sermon that's going to be preached today has already been preached. And whether you realize it or not, you might have been doing the preaching. See, I think you were probably preaching some, something today, whether you realized it or not. But when you decided this morning, I'm going to the house of the Lord to worship today, you were preaching something. When you got in your car and you backed out of the driveway in front of your neighbors, you were preaching something. When you drove on the streets through your community this morning headed this way, you were preaching something. When you drove up in the parking lot here today and you got out of that car, you started to walk into this place today, you were preaching something. You, you were preaching today. I'm still, regardless of what last week was like, I'm still rejoicing in Jesus. Regardless of what last week was like, I'm still repenting to Jesus. Regardless of what last week was like, I'm still believing in Jesus. Regardless of what last week was like, I'm still standing for Jesus. And so I'm just here this morning to say thank you all for preaching those sermons today all over our communities loud and clear. You blessed me by preaching that and by being here today. So praise the Lord for that. Amen. You're not clapping for yourselves, but I'll clap for you. All right, way to go. All right, so now, now you have to endure my sermon. I don't even know if it will fall in the top three sermons you hear today or not, but we'll, we'll do our best. We're in Matthew chapter 12. We're just walking through the gospel of Matthew line by line. And I love preaching that way. I love just allowing the Lord to set the agenda for what we're going to talk about. Instead of leaving it up to me, what do we want to talk about today? Let's talk about this or let's talk about that. That's okay from time to time. But I just love to let the word of God speak to us. And that, that's great. Challenging part of that is sometimes that leads you to some places in the scripture that if it had been left up to you, you probably would have skipped that one, right? Because there's going to be some challenging things that we come across. Today is kind of one of those days. So buckle up. Here we go. Matthew chapter 12. And we're going to start in verse 22. Let me set it up like this. The first three verses kind of stack on top of each other. And what they do is they set up the final 12 or 13 verses, which is Jesus responding to what happened in the first three verses. So let's dive in right here with the first thing I want to tell you this morning is we're going to look at the faithful heart of Jesus. The faithful heart of Jesus. Now the heart of Jesus has really been our focus in Matthew over the last several weeks. We talked about that at great length just last week. His heart has captured our attention, and rightly so. We've seen his heart on every page in Matthew's gospel. We reviewed last week all the way back to Matthew chapter 11 at the end of that where Jesus is describing to us what his heart is like. He says, my heart is gentle and lowly, meaning my heart is gentle or meek. I have all this power, but yet I'm using that for your benefit. I'm using that for your good. I could crush you with my power, but I'm not. I'm not. I am gentle, and I will use that for your good, for your benefit. 
ultimately for his glory. He says, my heart is gentle, and he says, my heart is lowly. In other words, Almighty God has condescended. He has come down to us, and he has made himself available to us. He's made himself approachable to us. He's made himself accessible to us. This is the heart of Jesus. He described it that way in Matthew 11. He displays it that way in Matthew chapter 12. He defends his disciples when the Pharisees come, pointing accusatory fingers and dumping shame and guilt on them. We see him display his heart when he heals the man with the withered hand in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. The good, kind, compassionate, gentle, lowly heart of Jesus is so predictable even that the religious leaders would use people in need as bait, as cheese on a mousetrap to try to trap. Jesus in something that they could accuse him of doing wrong. And today in our text, Matthew once again is going to come right back and he's going to point us to the heart of Jesus, the faithful heart of Jesus, the never changing heart, good, kind, compassionate, gentle, lowly heart of Jesus. Aren't you thankful this morning that that is the heart of Jesus? Amen. Verse 22, here's his heart again. Then a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him. That is the gentleness of Jesus. That is the power of Jesus working for the benefit of somebody else. He healed him so that the man spoke and saw. This man has multiple problems, right? He's blind and he's mute. That may imply that he's also deaf. He's got a lot of problems, but those problems aren't his biggest problem. His biggest problem is not the physical problem. His biggest problem is a spiritual problem. He's possessed by a demon. Now, demon possession was real then. Demon possession is still real today. Maybe someday in the not-so-distant future we can talk a little bit more about demons and the fact and the reality of them and what the Bible tells us about them. What's interesting about this healing in verse 22 is that Jesus is doing something that's kind of over the top from some of the things we've seen him do prior to this. He's healing the man, not only physically, but he's healing the man also spiritually. Jesus is showing his power not only over the natural realm in the world, but he's showing his power over the supernatural realm as well. Now, at this point, his power is beyond dispute. I mean, after all of this, through 12 chapters of Matthew, nobody's trying to argue that he's not doing these things. Nobody's trying to argue that he doesn't have this kind of supernatural power. Even the Pharisees who hate him and who have already started plotting to kill him, even they can't explain his power away. They can't dispute it. Jesus has repeatedly performed immediate, split-second miracles that people saw, they witnessed. And I'm not talking like crazy TV preacher kind of miracles, like I got a backache. Amen, hallelujah. Oh, my back stopped hurting. I mean, I don't know how you prove that. That's not the kind of miracles Jesus is doing. He goes in the synagogue. This man's got a tiny hand, tiny arm on this side, and he's got a normal-sized hand and arm on this side, and Jesus healed that one. And in front of their faces, immediately, this tiny little hand becomes exactly like the hand and the arm on the other side. This is what he's doing, and they can't argue that. And now today in this text, here's a man. They know this man's blind. They know this man is mute. He's been this way for perhaps his entire life, and he's possessed by a demon. And in an instant, this man's looking around. He's seeing stuff. In an instant, he's talking. No speech therapy, mind you. Like, no phonics charts to learn. None of that. 
He's just seeing stuff, and he's just talking like that. And he has been delivered from this demon. The faithful heart of Jesus, gentle heart, power, working for the good, for the benefit of others. Lowly heart, approachable, available, accessible. This is the heart of Jesus, healing the sick, setting the captives free. And yet, with so much demonstrable evidence right in front of their face every single day, the hearts of the people are still fickle. See, we saw the faithful heart of Jesus. Now I want you to see the fickle hearts of the crowd. Look at verse 23. And all the people were amazed. And they said, can this be the son of David? I'm thinking, how are you asking that question? I mean, hand just grew. He's seeing. He's over here talking. Demons out. And you're going, well, can this be? The promise. No, I think the question you ought to be asking is, how can this not be the Messiah? Right? How can this not be God in the flesh? How can this not be God walking among us? But here's the problem. They weren't looking for a Messiah with a gentle heart. They weren't looking for a Messiah that was lowly. They were looking for a Messiah that had horses and chariots and swords They were looking for a Messiah to come and to hit the Roman Empire like a bomb and set them free. They were looking for a political savior. They were looking for a military savior. See, the people were mistaken, as some of you might be mistaken today. They were mistaken into thinking that their greatest problem was something that really wasn't their greatest problem. They thought their greatest problem was Rome and Caesar And the oppression they were enduring under that empire. You today may think your greatest problem is exhibit A. But you may be wrong about that. Because their greatest problem wasn't Caesar. Their greatest problem was sin. And so the people see Jesus' power displayed. But he doesn't seem like a general. He's far too gentle to be a general. His focus isn't on a battlefield. His focus is on people who are broken and bruised. And it's precisely to those people that he most readily displays his gentle and his lowly heart. And we saw last week, 700 years prior to this, Isaiah described what the heart of the Messiah would be like. But they're not getting it. And verse 23 says they're amazed, but they're fickle. And they're going, could it be? Could this be? The promised Messiah, could this be the son of David? It might be because he's powerful. But it might not be because he doesn't fit their ill-conceived preconceptions about what the Messiah would be like. But here's the problem that's coming. Just because they're beginning to consider the possibility that this could be, might be, the promised Messiah, the son of David, and the Pharisees, religious leaders, they hear that, they step into that, and that leads us to point three, the foul hearts of the Pharisees. We've seen the faithful heart of Jesus, the fickle hearts of the crowd, now the foul hearts of the Pharisees. Look at verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard it, when they heard the buzz among the people, could it be, could it be, could it be? They shut it down 
They said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. So the Pharisees hear this rumble. Could it be? Could it be? And so they begin to immediately poison the minds of the fickle crowd, telling them, no, this man is operating with the power of Satan. Now think about that for a moment. They're not arguing that he's doing supernatural things. They're not trying to argue it's a hoax. They're not trying to argue it's fake, that it's smoke and mirrors, that it's some kind of magic or trickery. They're not arguing that. They can't argue that. They don't even try to deny that Jesus is doing tons of supernatural things. It's undeniable. Think about that. Even Jesus' greatest enemies knew there is something otherworldly about him. Even his greatest enemies knew there is something supernatural in their midst. Now today, people want to say, well, you know, I, I mean, I believe Jesus was a historical person. I believe he was a good man. I believe he was a good example. I believe he was a good teacher. But 2,000 years ago, neither his friends nor his enemies saw him as merely a good human. They readily recognized there is some supernatural power at work here. Well, knowing that, friends and enemies both agreed on that. Then that leaves you with two options. Where's this supernatural power coming from in his life? Two options, right? It's either coming from God or it's coming from Satan. And, of course, the Pharisees, they're not going to attach Jesus to God, to the power of God. So that would leave them with how many choices? Two minus one is one. That's right. There were two choices. They reject one, so now they're down to one. He must not be from God. He must be from Satan. And so they're poisoning the people's minds by saying, yeah, there is supernatural power at work in this man, but it's not from God, it's from Beelzebub. Beelzebub was a common name that the Jewish people used then to uh, refer to Satan, to the devil. So this is the argument that the Pharisees have chosen to make. Yes, this man has great power, he's doing supernatural things, but it can only be coming from one place. It can only be coming from Satan. But let me ask you this, what if they're wrong? How many choices are left now if they're wrong? The other, the other one is left, right? And so then it must be God who's doing that. That's the only option that's left. So Jesus is going to destroy their argument so that we clearly see there is only one plausible answer to the question, how's Jesus doing what Jesus is doing? So check this out. Number four, Jesus gives an answer. To their accusation. And the first thing he's going to do is he's going to show them how absurd their logic is. And by the way, class, any worldview other than a biblical worldview eventually plays itself out and lands into a place of absurdity. Logically, rationally, any worldview besides a biblical worldview lands in a place of absurdity. The worldview that has the most logic, the most reason in it, is the biblical worldview. The religious leaders are not operating out of a biblical worldview, and their argument is absurd. And Jesus is about to gently and lowly sort of point that out to them. <clears throat> Look at verse 25. It says, knowing their thoughts. Okay, listen. 
you never want to get into a debate with somebody that knows your thoughts. I mean, just think about that. I mean, I knew, I knew you were already thinking about it. No, I'm just kidding. I don't know your thoughts. That's amazing. You can't outthink the one who already knows your thoughts. So here he comes. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? This makes sense. A house divided falls. A nation divided falls. Jesus' point is this. If I'm operating with Satan's power, then why am I using Satan's power to deliver people from Satan's power? Their argument doesn't hold up. The Pharisees were absurdly arguing that Jesus is operating with Satan's power to cast out Satan. They're trying to convince the crowd Satan is intentionally shooting himself in the foot. It's absurd. It's an absurd argument. Once again, Jesus has done what we've seen him do time again to intellectually back them into a corner. They have to admit There's power here. There's something supernatural happening here. They want to say it's Satan, but that's just dumb. It's absurd. It makes no sense. And their argument is not only absurd, their argument is also inconsistent. And I'll show you how it's inconsistent. In fact, Jesus is going to show us how it's inconsistent. Verse 27, he says, And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. Okay, wait a minute. Jesus just said, you got some sons who go around doing exorcism and casting out demons or at least trying to. So, so let's talk about that. Let's unpack this. Josephus, the Jewish historian from 2,000 years ago, he tells us about this a little bit, that the Pharisees, the religious leaders, had a subset of people who would go around trying to perform exorcisms and cast demons out from people. We see an example of what Josephus is talking about in the Bible. In Acts chapter 19, we'll look at that. Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 13. Honestly, y'all, I love this passage. I kind of find it funny, all right? Acts chapter 19, I'm weird like that, but I think it's funny. You don't have to think it's funny. You can be a dud if you want to, but I think it's funny. Acts chapter 19, verse 13. I mean, nothing funny about demon possession, but just hang with me. I think it's funny. Did I mention I think this is funny? Acts chapter 19, verse 13. A group of Jews was traveling from town to town, casting out evil spirits. They tried to use the name of the Lord Jesus in their incantation, saying, I command you in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, to come out. So you got these guys going around trying to perform exorcisms, and they're co-opting the name of Jesus, and they're co-opting the name of Paul to serve their own purposes. Verse 14 says, seven sons of Sceva, a leading priest, were doing this. So you got these seven men who are connected to this priest, and they're going around doing this. In verse 15, here comes my favorite part. 15 says, but one time when they tried it, Uh, Emphasis on the word tried. One time when they tried it, the evil spirit replied, I know Jesus, I know Paul, but who are you? (laughs) Uh Uh-oh. And then the man with the evil spirit leaped on them, overpowered them, and attacked them with such violence that they fled from the house naked and battered. If you're laughing, you're my people. If you're not laughing... You're dead to me. I don't know you. I don't understand you. Jesus never lost 
when he battled a demon. But these phonies get their backsides handed to them that day. The point that Jesus is making is that, hey, gentlemen, you got people in your own group. They're going around doing, or at least trying to do, what I am doing without fail. But yet I do it, and you say it's Satan. They do it, and you applaud for them. Your argument is not only absurd, it's inconsistent. The only conclusion then can be, the Pharisees had two options about where this power is coming from in Jesus' life. And they made their choice. And they've chosen wrongly. That leaves one choice on the table. That the power that is at work in Jesus' life is not from Satan, but from God. Look at what Jesus says, verse 28. So if it is by the Spirit of God, must not be the Spirit of Satan. So if it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now I want you to remember that, what Jesus just said about the Spirit of God. He said, it is the Spirit of God that is at work here. It's the Spirit of God working through the Son of God to set people free, to do great works of power and might and miracles. It's the Spirit of God doing that. Remember that because we're going to come back to that. So Jesus has just backed them into a corner with their absurd, inconsistent argument and having totally dismantled their position, that leaves the audience now with one conclusion, which is, this is not from Satan. This must be from Almighty God. And Jesus says, that's precisely where this is from. And because that's where this is from, let me tell you what that means, he says. That means the kingdom of God has come. That means the king of kings is right here with you. Do you know where the kingdom of God is? It's wherever the king is. And he is right there in their midst. Now look, I believe the Bible teaches that there's a real physical kingdom of God that is coming one day in the future. But I believe the kingdom of God has already come. Because wherever the king is, that's where the kingdom of God is. And, and, and because of the grace of God who sent his son, Jesus, to die on the cross in my place. And because a long time ago, as a little boy, as best as I knew how, as best as I understood it, I reached out. I said yes to Jesus. He saved me. He took my sin away. God adopted me into his family. His Holy Spirit, same spirit that did these mighty acts through Jesus. The Bible says that same Holy Spirit came to live inside of me. That means the king is here with me today. That means the kingdom of God is present here with me today. And if you know Jesus today... As your Savior, Lord, that means the King is with you. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is present right here and now. It's the already, not yet, right? kingdom of God is already here, but not yet fully here. But it's here, but it's even going to be more here one day in the future. Verse 29. Jesus says, Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. So if, if, if you're going to, like, invade somebody's home, right? And there's a strong man that lives in that house. The only way you're going to take over that place, the only way you're going to plunder that place is you got to bind up that strong man. you got to get him incapacitated so that you can take over and do what you want with whoever or whatever may be in that house. Now think about that demon-possessed man back there in Acts chapter 19. There was a demon that invaded that man's body, or you could say his house. He, he broke in on that man. 
And he began to plunder everything that belonged to that man. The sons of Sceva couldn't help that man. They lost. Now that never happens to Jesus. Every human that we see him coming into contact with that has a demon or sometimes even multiple demons that have taken up residence in them, that's happening because their body has become the house for that demon. That demon is plundering their lives and taking from them what belonged to them. The demons are the strong men in the house. But Jesus is saying this, I've come and I'm overtaking that strong man. I'm, I'm binding him up and I'm throwing him out of that house. And I'm returning that house and everything in it to its rightful owner. The sons of Sceva couldn't do that, but Jesus does it every single time. Jesus is saying to them, every time I encounter Satan, I'm binding him up. I'm casting him out. He can't stop me. I'm setting people free. I'm delivering people from him. I'm giving people back what the enemy has stolen. And don't forget, sitting right over here is exhibit A. The guy that was blind, who sees? Who couldn't talk, but now can't shut up. Praising Jesus over here. Free. What the enemy had stolen from him, Jesus has gone in, bound the strong man, cast him out, and returned to the man everything that was rightfully his. Who did that for that man? Not Satan. God did that for that man. The Spirit of God working through the Son of God. Jesus did that. Jesus set him free. Who conquered the demonic stronghold in his life? Jesus did that. Jesus was, was rep repeatedly breaking into these lives where Satan had a stronghold and was overpowering Satan and returning to the people what Satan had stolen from them. By the way, he's the same God today. Same power today. Don't think just because you don't bench press, gentlemen, what you used to bench press that God can't. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's not diminishing in his power. He's not diminishing in his omniscience, his omnipotence, his omnipresence. He's the same God. And he's still delivering people today from Satan's stronghold. He has me. There was a day that I was a resident citizen of the kingdom of darkness. And I was a little boy, so my life didn't look really super dark. But that was my status before a holy God. I was a citizen of the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of darkness. But there was a day that the Spirit of God spoke to my heart and drew me to trust Christ as my Savior. And in that moment that I repented and believed in Jesus, he transferred me out of Satan's kingdom into the kingdom of God. From the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his glorious light. Today he will set you free. If you're here today and you've never turned to Jesus and trusted him to take your sin away and to give you a relationship with God, he stands ready today to give you victory in Jesus. Or you may be here today and there's somebody in your life, somebody you love, somebody you care about, and there just seems to be some dark stronghold, some demonic stronghold in their life. I'm telling you today, don't give up. Seek the Lord for that. Pray on their behalf because this same God who could break into people's lives and bind up demonic spirits and cast them out and set people free is the same God that's doing that in people's lives today. That man that told me before church today that I almost didn't come because the end of this week didn't go well and I had a setback. Those old strongholds came coming back. But somewhere in the middle of that, it sounded to me like Jesus showed up again in his life. 
like the Spirit of God showed up again in his life. And he got up and he got himself here today. Spent time at the altar in the first service, which is where a lot of us ought to be today, by the way. Because we're all hanging by some threads today. It's just those who most clearly remember the hunger pains are the one most grateful to come and sit at the table. Some of us have just forgotten how hungry we used to be, so we just kind of brush it off and we just kind of do our little churchy thing, little religious thing. But maybe today there ought to be a holy hunger in our hearts that drives us to the altar today like it did him because he could still smell uh, the gunpowder in the air from the spiritual battle that he was in last week. But he fought with the power of the Spirit of God, with everything in him to show up to be in this place today. That's the power of God working on his behalf. The same God is doing that still in people's lives today. So Jesus has answered their accusation, right? By saying, your argument is absurd. Your argument is inconsistent. And now Jesus gets to the heart of the problem. What's going on? Number five, Jesus gets to the heart of the problem. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. See, your heart cannot be divided. There's no middle ground. No heart can be Switzerland. Can't be neutral. The kingdom is here, and that means it's available to you. You can become a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. How do you get in? You repent of your sin, you turn to Jesus, and you believe in him. You trust him. Here's what he says, verse 30. He says, whoever's not with me, is against me. You feel that? There's no middle ground. Whoever's not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. You're either with Jesus or you're against him. There, there's no other option that goes, well, you can just like him. You can just say he's a good man, he's a good teacher, he's a good example. No, those aren't choices on the table. You're either with him or you're against him. You either say he is God or he is from Satan. That's the choices. You can choose today, I'm going to side with the Pharisees and say he's not God. He's not from God. Okay, fine. That's an absurd, inconsistent argument. It doesn't hold water. You're only left with one valid choice. This is God in flesh. This is God walking among us. But see, the problem with the Pharisees was not that they couldn't argue or they couldn't employ reason and logic, the problem was their hearts. Their hearts were growing harder by the moment, darker and more wicked by the day. Now, remember earlier Jesus said he's doing this by the power of the Spirit of God, healing people, casting out demons by the Spirit of God. They said, no, it's actually Satan's power. So this brings us to verse 31. He says, therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, that's Jesus, will be forgiven. You, you can talk bad about Jesus, he says, you, and be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. All right, what, what does this mean? What is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? And, and why is that not forgivable? Well, first of all, let me be clear about this. There is no sin that God cannot forgive. No sin God cannot forgive. No sin that is so bad that God goes, nah, not going there. We're not forgiving that one. 
The worst sin I can think of is that you would just murder the Son of God. And as he was being murdered on the cross, you know what he asked his father to do for the people who were murdering him? Forgive them. The Bible's clear. The kind of sin, the degree of sin, the quantity of sin cannot cancel out the grace of God. His grace is greater than all of our sin. God forgives all kinds of sin. He even forgives blasphemers. He just said that, verse 31. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. Paul raised his hand and said, I was a blasphemer. You could even reject Jesus and be forgiven. How do I know that? Because there was a time in my young life that I rejected Jesus and he forgave me. Every person in this room, at some point in your life, you rejected Jesus. But you know he can forgive that. And so what does Jesus mean when he says that the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven? Well, here's my, my quick answer. For forgiveness to be available, it requires repentance and faith. So if the Pharisees have now concluded that what Jesus does is not by the power of God, but by the power of Satan. Here's what's going on. They've gone a long way down the road that says we are rejecting him. We're resisting him. We're refusing him. We're saying no to repentance and faith in this man. And if they stay that course that they're on, they will not be forgiven. They will not be forgiven in this life, Jesus says, this age, nor will they be forgiven in the age to come. That group of people have been given more evidence than any other group in the history of the world, yet they would not repent and believe. They saw the work of God, they saw the power of God, and they said, it's not from God, it's from the devil. Listen, at this point, they're not just merely not believing. At this point, they are determined to not believe. They are fighting to not believe. They are actively resisting, refusing, rebelling with all their might. They're pushing back against Jesus with everything they have in them. They are as entrenched as entrenched can be. They have dug their heels in as deeply as you can dig your heels in. They've reached a place now of absolute, permanent refusal to believe. So Jesus is saying to them, if you're still resisting and rejecting the work of the Holy Spirit in you, towards you, it's obvious you are not going to. You're going to continue to resist the Spirit of God, push back, fight against, and therefore you will die in that sin and you will never be forgiven. That's the unforgivable sin. It's to get to a place in your life where your heart is so hard against God that you would prefer to fight him than to simply receive forgiveness from him. If you aren't going to ask him to forgive you, then you can't be forgiven. The unforgivable sin is the sin of resisting the work of the Holy Spirit and dying in that state of resistance and refusal and rebellion against Jesus as God's son. Pastor Johnny was telling me just recently, and Johnny, forgive me if I don't get it exactly right, 
he and a friend went to see an older gentleman. Many people had shared the gospel with this older gentleman through the years. Prayed for him to come to know Jesus as his Savior. And they go and spend some time with that gentleman and share the gospel again. And, and the, the old man says to Johnny and his friend, listen, I've gone my entire life without Jesus. I don't need him now. Sometime soon after that, the same old gentleman ended up in the hospital. Pastor Johnny went to spend some time with him to witness to him again. Again, the man resisting, refusing, rejecting the Lord. Pastor Johnny even said, before I leave, can I pray with you? And he just looked at Pastor Johnny. Johnny said with a coldness that he's never seen before and said to him, I'd prefer you not. That's a frightening place to be, to be resisting and refusing the grace of God. That's the unforgivable sin, to die in that state. Jesus says, verse 33, and I think he's looking at the crowd, the fickle hearts of the crowd, right, when he says this. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. In other words, I think Jesus is saying, you've got to make up your minds. You can't ride the fence. You want to be a good tree? Come on. You want to be a bad tree? Then go on about your business. But there's still hope for you, fickle crowd. You're not where the Pharisees are yet. There's still a choice that you can make. You can choose bad or you can choose good. You can choose righteousness or you can choose evil. You can choose to follow the Pharisees or you can choose to follow Jesus. And I think he turns and looks at the religious crowd again. He says, verse 34, you brood of vipers. In other words, you're like Snakes that are deceptive and destructive. You are leading these people away. You're leading them down the same path of the hardening of their hearts that you've been on. He says, how can you speak good when you're evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The point is this. Have the Pharisees said some terrible things about Jesus? Yes. But the problem is not what they've said. The problem is where what they said came from. It came out of their heart. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. Their words have revealed the state of their heart. Their hearts are as cold toward God as a human heart can be. Verse 35, Jesus says, The good person, out of his good treasure, or out of his heart, brings forth good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, or his heart, brings forth evil. The reason the words and the deeds and the behavior of the Pharisees is evil because their hearts are evil. And wicked. See, our words and our deeds reveal who we really are. That's where it's proven, our words and our deeds. Look at what he says, verse 36. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you'll be justified. And by your words, you'll be condemned. Your words, your behavior are going to prove what's really real in your heart. You might can fake other people, but you'll never fake God. You'll never fool God. Our words and our deeds are accurate gauges of our hearts. They're evidence of what's in our hearts. And here's the deal. Our words and our deeds don't save us, but our words and deeds do give evidence that we have been saved. See, if you've truly been saved, your heart's truly changed. And when your heart's truly changed, your words are changed. Your deeds are changed. Your life is changed. Now listen, as believers, that doesn't mean we bat a thousand it doesn't mean we're perfect. We're not. But the hallmark of being a follower of Jesus is, while I may not be perfect and I may not always get it right, man, alive I want to. I want to honor him. 
I want to grow in the knowledge and the grace of the Lord Jesus. I want to stand with the psalmist and say, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Oh Lord, my strength and my redeemer. That ought to be the bent and the posture of a believer's heart. Why? Because judgment day is coming. Jesus just said that. It's coming. Listen, if you're here today and you leave this world rejecting Jesus as the Son of God, the Holy Spirit has come at you again and again to say, you were loved. Jesus gave his life for you. Your sin can be forgiven. You can be reconciled to God. All you have to do is turn from your sin and yourself and put your faith in Christ. But you walk out of here today going on resisting and rejecting him, and you die in that state. That's unforgivable. You won't have another opportunity to be forgiven. You will not be forgiven, not because God is not willing to forgive you, but because you're not willing to humble yourself and receive forgiveness. You will not be able to point a finger in the face of God and say, this is on you. No, it's not. It's on you. Today is the day of salvation. And if you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus to be your Savior and your God, I beg you, don't leave this place today till you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he's rescued from sin and death in the grave. You turn from sin and repent and trust him to be your Savior and your Lord. But today the room's full of a lot of believers that you need to be reminded, I need to be reminded, we're also going to have a judgment day. It'll be a different judgment from people who reject Jesus. We'll be at what's called the judgment seat of Christ, and there we won't be punished for sin, praise God. Because all my sin has already been punished. Jesus took my punishment at the cross. Every drop of God's wrath that I deserve for every sin I have committed, will commit, Jesus already took all of that on himself. There's no sin left in me to be punished. Because Jesus has already paid for it all. What I will face, and you as a believer will face at the judgment seat of Christ, is potential loss of rewards. The good that we've done while in this body. Did we do it with a pure heart? Did we do it with a right motive? Did we do that for the glory of God? God will test all those things. And what was done with the right heart, the right motive for the glory of God, it will come through that fire. And there will be rewards from that. What wasn't done from the right heart, the right reason, the right motivation, that's going to be lost. Listen, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you've never said yes to Jesus, and you think, I can wait till judgment day and nail that down. No. Jesus already said, if you reject him in this age, you won't be forgiven in this age, nor will you be forgiven in the age to come. It'll be too late. That day is not the day of salvation. That day is not the day of grace. That day is not the day of mercy. That day is the day of judgment. This is the day of grace. This is the day of mercy. This is the day of salvation. If you're here today and you know Jesus and you're thinking, well, I can just wait till I stand before Jesus and then I can get it all right, then no. Today is the day to say, Jesus, listen, my heart doesn't look like your heart. And the reason I know my heart doesn't look like your heart is because my words aren't like your words. And my life's not like your life. My deeds and my actions, they're not like yours. But Jesus, today, on this day of mercy and grace, I want to humble myself before you and say, change my heart, God. Make me look more like my king. I know I'm in your kingdom, but I haven't been living like it. So God, would you change me today? With heads bowed and with eyes closed. I just want to ask you before we get out of here today, 
If you need to give your life to Jesus today, maybe you've been pushing back, pushing back, pushing back, trying to buy some time, buy some time, and you know you're running out of time, man. And today's the day of salvation. You want to give your life to Jesus today. I don't know any other way to do it. It's old school. But I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand and say, Pastor, I need Jesus today. Unashamedly, straight up honest, I need Jesus to be my Savior today. Amen. Amen. Just lift them up. Just say, Lord Jesus, save me. I believe you are God's son. And I believe you died for my sin. And I know I've been pushing against you, but I want to run to you right now. And I want to embrace you as my Savior. I know you died for me. I know you rose from the dead. And I give you my life today. If you, if you trusted Christ today, let's talk. Let's chat. You'll find me. You're here today. You know the Lord. But it sure doesn't look like it. You're here today and God needs Jesus to change my heart today. My heart looks like me, not like him. My words sound like me, they don't sound like him. My choices, decisions, attitude, actions, they don't look like him. They look like me. And today I want to ask the Lord to change my heart. Is that any of my brothers and sisters in the room besides your pastor whose hand is up to say, yes, that's me today. Change my heart, God. I need you. Any, any brothers and sisters in the Lord in the room say, that's me today too, Pastor. I need to be more like Jesus. Just lift your hand up. Amen. 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 Come on, let's stand. Let's worship the Lord. There's room at this altar today. You can make your chair an altar. I just think maybe we need to get gentle and lowly with the one who got gentle and lowly with us.